0: Thank mm-hmm. you. no expert on forgiveness but God has taken me through some things uh, some things have happened and God has uh, taken me through them um, and given me some insight some glimpses into uh, what can be done uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and uh, you know some people describe their uh, life with the Lord as as a path down which they're walking and um, I wouldn't describe mine that way more like a road that uh, At times I've been dragged down, kicking and screaming, because uh, these are not necessarily choices uh, that I would have made. Um, But God has gotten me there. And one of the ways that God has taught me about forgiveness is this little book, this little letter in the New Testament. It's so short that the whole letter is printed for you in the bulletin today. Uh, It's the letter of Philemon. And I want to look at that in a minute, but first... um, As Terry said, I was asked to come here today and share a story of what God has done in my life and in the lives of several people around me. Uh, My journey to forgiveness began um, really many, many years ago when I was 15 years old. Uh, I had grown up in a Christian home. I don't ever recall a period of time in my life when I didn't believe in Jesus as my Savior. Uh, My father was a pastor, a chaplain in the Army. Uh, he was the center of my universe. Um, he was this kind of rock that uh, some men you meet are, are like. And uh, you know, he had served in Vietnam as a field chaplain and come back with a Purple Heart. He was shot eleven times uh, in Vietnam. He, uh, prior to becoming a chaplain, he'd been an officer and in the 82nd Airborne. Those guys who jumped out of planes, had jumped out of planes in Korea. Uh, he jumped out of planes over a thousand times in his life. Um, not a trait that I inherited uh, from him. Uh, <laughs> at all, uh, but uh, he was really the center of, of uh, kind of my universe and our universe, my mom and my two older sisters, we had a great relationship, we shared a lot of things in common, not the least of which was our love of the game of tennis, I was a fairly accomplished player back then, and, and, um, and he had taught me, and uh, one night in uh, January, uh, in a very bad, during a very bad winter in the Midwest with lots of snow, uh, he and I are out shoveling snow in our driveway, and uh, it's about 10 o'clock at night, and we're, we have one shovel between us. And we're sharing a talk, and I remember he had just asked me about how uh, practice at the racquet club had gone that morning, and, uh, and uh, I heard a voice behind me. And the voice said, nobody move, and nobody get hurt. Don't move, and nobody get hurt. And I turn around, there's two men standing there. And one of them had a gun. And my father, I heard my father say, uh, you know, what's going on here? And the gun went off. And uh, I turned... And I saw my father fall back into the driveway. And, and I turned and looked at the man. And he now had the gun pointed at me. And he said, give me your wallet, which I did. Um, I handed him it had $1 in it. And I turned around with my back to them with my hands in the air. And I stood there in the most fearful moment of my life. And with every assumption that, that any second now, I would get a bullet in the back. And, um, I looked up a few seconds later to see them running up the street, ran over to my father, and uh, I just never assumed that he wouldn't get up. Um, but as it turns out the bullet had gone all the way through his heart, right through his heart, blown out all four walls, and had no chance to survive, and was dead by the time I got to him uh, five seconds later. And needless to say, the entire world came crashing down around me, and it didn't really fall apart immediately. Um, the God of comfort that um, uh, that we all have the opportunity to know really came into my life and into the life of my family. We had thousands of people lifting us up, and um, my, there were 1,500 people at my father's memorial service in Indianapolis, and another 250 at his funeral in Washington, D.C., and I know all those people and thousands more were praying for us, and um, it really it was the only thing that helped me and my, the rest of my family survive during that period of time. But as I went off to college a few years later, as many of us are wont to do, I really began to drift away from my relationship with the Lord. I, and I believe it had a lot to do with what had happened. But never really experienced a crisis of faith or anything. It didn't, I would have said I didn't believe. As a matter of fact, if you would known me in college and you'd asked me, I would have told you I was a Christian. Um, but there's an old saying uh, that I would apply. I would, while I was a Christian, there was no evidence to convict me of that fact. Um, I was engaged in, well, I was drinking all the time, and then even right at the end of college and after, got heavily involved in drugs. And um, about a year after college, had the opportunity, um, believe it or not, um, through Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> um, I used to say that I'm the only person in America that Bruce Springsteen's ever led to the Lord. Uh, but last night, somebody came up to me after the service and told me how Bruce Springsteen led them to the Lord. So... <laughs> So I, it's a great line, so I'm, when I leave here, I'm going to conveniently forget that I had that conversation and keep using it. <laughs> but um, he's got this song called I'm on Fire. And uh, there's a line in the song. It says, sometimes it's like someone took a knife, all edgy and dull, and cut a six-inch valley through the middle of my soul. And I'm driving down the road and, uh, on a hot Houston night, and uh, I, hear this, I hear this song. And I start to cry, and I have to pull over because I can't drive. And, um, and I knew what that hole was. I knew that I, I knew that I had taken that knife and cut God out of my own life. And right then and there, I also knew enough to know what to say, and what to pray. And I asked God back into my life and gave my life to Him again. And uh, long story short, a few years later, I found myself in seminary. You know, I felt like ministry was the only thing that God was going to really allow me to be happy doing. And while in seminary in Boston, I spent a lot of time uh, down in the urban context of Boston and really began to fall in love with the city, began to fall in love with the kids in the city that I had an opportunity to interact with, and really began to feel a call uh, to uh, the poor in particular. Um, And uh, after leaving seminary, I went back to Indianapolis with the hope of getting a job there and doing that, and uh, read a book about that time called Breaking Down Walls. It was a book by two men, Uh, one an African-American pastor, one a a white uh, director of a ministry, who had a partnership. It was all about racial reconciliation. And God used that book and those men to really help define my calls, not just ministry to the urban poor, but ministry specifically to the urban black poor community. Um, The three men uh, who were involved in my father's death were all poor, uh, all generally grown up poor. They were all African-American. And one of them had grown up right around the corner from where I now live. And and God has uh, used that to call me into that ministry. But I ended up uh, moving to Chicago to work for these two men and learn about the ministry of racial reconciliation. About the time I did, I met a young lady who was getting ready to leave and move to Oxford, England to go to grad school. And uh, I'd known her for three weeks when I asked her to marry me and move to the inner city of Chicago instead. She said, yes. I actually said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. But uh, she was kind of blown away by that, and, and she moved up there with me, and, and she loved it. But um, we had a great time up there learning about racial reconciliation. We, we were involved in an intentionally mixed-race church with this great pastor. I was discipled by an elder, uh, an older man by the name of William Morris Jr. And, and while there, began to really, for the first time, get in touch with the pain of the African-American community, specifically African-American men because of those of the people that I had a relationship with. And for the first time, I started to realize how important it was to learn to forgive one another because it's such an important aspect of racial reconciliation. And one of the ways ways that that issue of forgiveness began to be impressed upon me was this little letter of Philemon. And so, if you look at it here, um, this letter is written about 60 AD, about 30 years after the death of Christ. Um, It's written by Paul, the Apostle Paul. And and he has been taking trips around the Mediterranean, starting churches in different cities, places like uh, Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae. And and partly because of this work that he's been doing, he's arrested and placed under house arrest in Rome. And while he's under house arrest, he writes letters to these churches that he's started. And and these letters um, that he sends to these churches are... Uh, were we're basically what makes up most of our New Testament today. Uh, Letters like uh, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And uh, there's a major emphasis in these letters. The letters, some of them are called Paul's prison letters. There's a major emphasis on forgiveness. As a matter of fact, in Colossians 3.13 it says, He says to the church there, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So he takes the time to write these letters, and he sends them back to the churches so that they can be read in front of the congregation, almost like a sermon. Um, But in addition to those letters, he also sends this very short letter to a personal friend of his by the name of Philemon. Now we know that Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and uh, probably chained to a Roman guard uh, around the clock. And um, we know he has a number of men with him, some of whom are also in chains, but some who are not, who are there serving him. One of those men is a man by the name of Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is a runaway slave, uh, which is not uncommon for Rome at the time. It's estimated that uh, the 100 years, 200 years around Jesus' life and death, about a half a million uh, runaway slaves from different parts of the Roman Empire relocated in Rome. And Onesimus was one of those. Um, And he had gone to Rome to hide in that urban environment, possibly. And we know that um, Onesimus had served this man, Philemon, who is. the man that this letter was written to, who is a wealthy Christian in the city of Colossae. And Philemon had become a believer in Jesus during one of Paul's journeys through Colossae, and, and the church that Paul started there meets in Philemon's home. Now, what is referred to as slavery in the first century is a, is a lot different than, or not a lot, but a little different than what we think of as slavery within the context that we had here in the United States. It's, uh, it's still a brutal and oppressive institution, but it's more of an indentured servanthood. Slaves can be educated Uh, They can be landowners, even business owners, but most of their work has to go to benefit their master. Uh, And most biblical scholars believe that Onesimus was a highly educated slave and possibly ran Philemon's household, maybe even ran his businesses. But Onesimus decides to run away, and as he leaves, he commits a further offense. We're not really sure what it is, but most biblical scholars believe he probably stole something from Philemon, probably money, to finance his journey and his relocation. And somehow Onesimus becomes part of Paul's party while he's under house arrest, and he We don't know how, maybe he he probably knew who Paul was, had possibly even met him. Uh, But he seeks him out, maybe he's feeling guilty about what happened, he seeks him out, and he starts to serve Paul. Paul. But Paul knows that the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus isn't right, and so when Paul sends his letter back to the church that meets in Philemon's home, the letter of Colossians, he also sends Onesimus, along with this very personal, the most personal of all the letters in the scriptures, to Philemon. And he appeals to Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Now, as I look at this letter, it seems to me that there are a lot of sermons in here. And I'm going to try to only preach one of them, I promise. Uh, But there's so much good stuff packed in here um, that we could go on for a long time. But I want to look at three points this morning, three things that I see in here that have helped me deal with the issue of forgiveness in my life. Three considerations. The first is that God convicts us to forgive others. Verses 8 through 10 Read that, and then skip down to 21. It says, That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask, and even more. Now, as I said, I think Pastor Terry has done a great job in sharing with us what the Lord has to say about forgiveness. Uh, But Paul, and and so he lays out the commands, but Paul takes a slightly different tack here with his friend. He doesn't say, you must forgive. It's interesting that this is the only letter that Paul writes that made it into the scriptures where he doesn't start off with saying who he is, that he is an apostle of Christ and therefore an authority. Uh, Instead, he wants Philemon to do it, not because he's commanded, but because he wants to. He says, I could order you to do the right thing. I have the authority, I have the authority of the men who were chosen by Jesus to lead the church. I am one of those men, but I'm not going to do that here. I'm not going to command you. Instead, I appeal to love. It was understood that forgiveness was the right thing. Paul knows that Philemon is aware and very knowledgeable about the teachings of Jesus. And then he says, and not only that, I know that you will do it. Not Not only do I ask you to do it, but not command, I know you will do it. 21, I'm confident as I write this that you will do what I ask and even more. For me, the final conviction of forgiveness came uh, one night, uh, one Monday morning, I'm sorry, uh, sitting in my sweltering apartment in Chicago after hearing a particularly powerful sermon on Sunday morning about racial reconciliation. I had a great pastor who was a powerful preacher to both the white and the black audience, and he could turn any, he could preach on any scripture in the Bible and turn it into a sermon about reconciliation, uh, which is, you know, some preachers turn it into how you, why you should give more to the church. He turned it into why you should forgive and reconcile with your brother, which is much better. Um, although you still need to give, sorry Pastor. Um, but anyway, after hearing a particularly powerful sermon, on Monday morning, I am I'm, I'm, uh, praying and doing my quiet time and I said, God, you know, I really would love to be able to speak and to preach and to teach with that kind of authority on the issues of forgiveness and racial reconciliation. And, and I mentioned Dr. Washington, who was our pastor, but then John Perkins and several other men that are kind of heroes of the faith to me. And God spoke to me that morning and I'm not the kind of guy that normally hears God speaking. And I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was as clear as could be. Um, he said to me, he said, Tim, those men that you just mentioned can preach with power on the issue of forgiveness because they have forgiven and you haven't. See, I'd kind of struck this deal with God that I, would f- I knew what the scripture said about forgiveness. I'd heard stories of forgiveness. I knew that I should forgive the men who killed my father. But I kind of had this deal that I will do that when they say they're sorry. But God said, I went to the cross. He said to me that morning, I went to the cross and died for your sins before you asked for forgiveness for me, and I want you to do the same. Those men preach with power because they have forgiven, and you haven't. That morning, I sat down and I wrote a letter to the shooter. I told him about what God had done in my life, and I told him how my life had been redeemed and how God could redeem his life, and I told him I'd love, to, I'd love to share it with them but then I also told him I forgave him for what he did. And I didn't want whatever guilt he might experience to keep him uh, from having a relationship with God. So God convicts us to forgive other people, first point. Second point, God gives us the power to forgive other people. Verses 6 and ver- then verse 25, he says, I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. And verse 25, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know, Paul is always praying for his friends and his brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul knows that he's ask, what he's asking is, is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust me, I'm not a forgiving person by nature. Ask my children. Um, but, you know, God has given me, gave me the ability to do that in that case. And, you know, I, I hear stories all the time because occasionally I have the opportunity to share. And I've even heard some stories this weekend of people talk about what they have forgiven or, or how they're struggling to forgive. And, and I marvel at the, the, what, what people do and what they forgive. But then I, I ache over uh, when I hear the stories of people who are trying to forgive. And my first reaction is often, ah, don't forgive. Just let them rot, and, you know, move on, don't forgive them. But that's the flesh side of Tim Street speaking. But the Holy Spirit moves in and he gives us the power to to, uh, to forgive. But we need to also remember that whenever we're attempting to be obedient to God, Satan is going to try to stop us. And that very same day, after I wrote that letter, I'm on my way to mail it, and uh, I was in an accident. This was a very tough inner-city neighborhood in Chicago, Uh, a lot of gangs, and I knew what the gang members looked like. We all did. And the four men in the other car were all gang members. And um, they jumped out of the car, start cursing at me, even though it was their fault. And one attempts to pull me out of the car, and I hit the gas, a praying that the engine's still running, and it is, and I, I get away, I pull into a police station, and they go on. But Satan knows our weaknesses. He knows how to get to us. And he knew that one of my weaknesses was personal safety because of what happened in my childhood. And over the course of the next few days, I became more and more paralyzed to eventually the point where I couldn't leave the house. Um, and, and our pastor heard about what was happening, and he came over, and I told him the story. And it was the first time anybody had heard the story. And um, and he challenged the church to come around us, particularly the black community within the church, to come around us. And they started coming by and praying for us. And then they walked us out of the house. And then they loved us. And we began—I began—to be healed through that experience. I began to be blessed through that experience. And, and so God gives us the ability to forgive the big things, but he also, not just the big things, but the little things. I, I appreciated Pastor Terry's second sermon in this series. We talked about misdemeanors versus felonies, big things versus little things. And he did a great job. But, you know, we have to forgive the big things, but also the hundreds of little slights that we experience throughout life. And if we don't have the ability to do that, we'll be miserable. Anybody who's married knows that forgiveness is a big part of marriage. Um, or I hope you do. <laughs> If you don't, it is. Um, Because if you live with somebody who's not perfect, they're going to hurt you. And guess what? You're going to hurt them because you're not perfect either. But we have to find the strength. We have to constantly be diligent. We have to constantly strive and constantly petition and plead to God for the strength to forgive and and to repent. And we have to throw ourselves on the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're in a close relationship with anybody, spouse, sibling, business partner, best friend the same is true when, when my wife and I we, when we pray together when we put the Holy Spirit and we put Christ at the center of our relationship you know, we can be mad at each other and pray together and when we come up from that prayer I don't even remember what we were mad about because the power of the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to forgive so God convicts us to forgive others he gives us the power to do so and then third God is glorified and his purposes are advanced through forgiveness Verse 15 there says, Paul says to Onesimus, it seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever as a brother. During the first week of this series, Terry told the story of Joseph, who of course was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he's faced with them later in life, and he has the opportunity to get retribution or to forgive, and he decides to forgive. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, in my own life, it took a long time to see how God was going to redeem this situation, how he was going to work in it for for his glory. But a few years later, after uh, sending those original letters, I was back in Indianapolis. We had started this ministry that Terry mentioned. And uh, a a pastor of a local church says, you're never going to believe who I met. I met the guy who was the driver of the car that night. He's coming to the services that we're holding in the prison uh, about 40 miles away. His name was Don Cox, and he says uh, he'd like you to come see him. And I went up there to see him, and um, I took some friends with me because I was scared to death. Um, I was trembling as I went in to see this guy. And, um, you know, in a maximum security prison, when you go in, they open the gate you walk through, and then they shut that gate behind you before they open the next gate in front of you. And I'm standing there as the gate's shutting behind me, and I'm trembling, and I look down at my shoes, and, I, and all, I'm not the person who is real good with scripture memorization, um, but all of these scriptures about you visit with, you know, when Jesus said you visited me in prison, you know, came back to me, and for the first time, I felt like, you know, God was saying, you're finally, finally, you're walking in the shoes of Jesus, and you're walking in Jesus' footsteps. You're doing what I called you to do, and I went in, and, and Don and I hugged, and we spent a great hour together and he said how sorry he was for what had happened and, and took full responsibility for his participation in what had happened and, and, and I was able to express again my forgiveness to him and we prayed together. And I didn't know it at the time, um, but he told his mother later that his impression of me when I walked through this gate, now he hadn't seen me since I was 15 uh, at the murder trial, but he, he said one, there was a huge man walked through the gate, you know, I was expecting a kid and one, he was blown away by how big he was. But he said, that regardless of how big he was, it was obvious he wasn't walking under his own power. You know, he wasn't, it wasn't Tim Street walking through that gate. But it was the Holy Spirit, you know, lifting him through. And he says, right then and now, I knew the gospel was real, and I gave my life to Christ, you know. And through an amazing series of events, Don got out of prison a few years ago, partially because I testified on his behalf at a sentence modification hearing. And when he went to prison, he didn't even have a high school diploma. When he got out of prison, he had a bachelor's in science, uh, in history, and every p- potential trade he could, could take advantage of. And he now uh, works as part of the ministry, um, comes in when I ask him to to speak to kids about the choices they make and the dangers of the choices they make, and, and he even cuts the grass uh, because that's what he does. And I had the pleasure a couple of years ago of performing his wedding. You know, and to see his life and to see it God, honoring God. And a couple, of, uh, about a month ago, um, I get this phone message. And um, it's one of those days that I don't think you experience here, but I know a lot of you have relocated here from other places. So if anybody who's from the Midwest knows this experience after a cold winter and, and everything's in lots of rain in the spring. And then one day, it's 70 degrees. It's sunny. And you roll down the windows, and you realize, I can, I can drive with the windows down for the first time this year. <laughs> and the lilacs are in full bloom. And even in a poor inner city neighborhood like mine, there are lilacs everywhere, and they smell wonderful. And everything's green. It's the first day you notice, wow, everything's green. You know, and it just feels so good. It feels so new. And I get this message, and I listen to it. I played it for my wife later. And it's, Tim, this is Don. I just called to say hi, and uh, don't, don't need to call me back. But I'm driving down the road, the window's down, and it feels like freedom. And he says, I just want to thank you for that. I prayed for my wife later. You know, he, and he says, I just want to thank God for what he's done. And I want to praise him. and I want to serve him. And I prayed for my wife later, and we're crying. I'm crying now. <laughs> you know, we don't know what happens between Onesimus and Philemon. But we know that a man by the name of Onesimus later becomes the pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus. And most biblical scholars believe that that was that Onesimus. And we can assume that this little letter would never have been read in front of the church, never made it into the scriptures, if Philemon had not been obedient in front of the whole church and forgiven Onesimus and blessed the whole church that met his family. But not only the whole church, still blessing people today, 2,000 years later. God can redeem anything if you let him. I'm going to pray and, and for a minute, and the band's going to come up. We're not done yet, um, but uh, they're going to close out the service, but let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together in your name, to look at your word, uh, to hear what you have to say to us, and we praise you today, Lord, for what your word says, for the story of Onesimus and Philemon and for what it teaches us. Well, thank you, Lord, for you know, the story that you've been able to take me through, but I'm sure many people in this room. And, but I also know, Lord, that there are people who, uh, who need to learn how to forgive, and, and all of us need to constantly learn again how to forgive. Uh, but, Lord, if there's anybody like that, we just pray that this would be the opportunity that they would say, I can do this because I throw myself uh, at your mercy, and I give myself into your power. And, uh, and Lord, they can be healed. You can be glorified when you give them the power to do that. Uh, Father, we just thank you again for this time together this morning. Just pray all this in the precious name of your son, Jesus.